For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The People of God. The People of God. This is part two in this particular text running from Romans chapter 9, verses, really verse 24 through 29. And our focus particularly this morning will be on 27 through 29. So we're closing in now on the conclusion of Romans chapter 9. And as we do, we've been considering together the sovereign purpose of God and the salvation of undeserving sinners. God's sovereign plan decreed from before the foundation of the, of the world for saving undeserving sinners like you and I. Now that redemptive purpose involves, as we've seen, that redemptive purpose involves the unrestrained, God's unrestrained exercise of his sovereign freedom in determining from the same lump of fallen humanity those who would remain vessels of dishonor, repositories of his wrath, the objects of his judicial and righteous hardening, prepared beforehand for eternal misery and ruin, and the exercise of God's sovereign freedom in determining those who would be vessels of honor, the beneficiaries of his mercy, the objects of his gracious compassion prepared beforehand for eternal glory. In fulfillment of that sovereign purpose then, God demonstrates astonishing forbearance, astonishing patience with those who have sinned against him. With us, certainly, astonishing patience with us concerning our sin against him, but particularly his patience with those vessels of wrath determined to be the objects of his righteous judgment. In other words, in his forbearance, in great long-suffering, God restrains the full and immediate execution of his retributive and righteous justice. And he endures with much patience those who are fully deserving of his righteous wrath. He does that, brothers and sisters, with a purpose. He does that to fulfill a purpose in order to fulfill that sovereign purpose of making the riches of his glory known on the vessels of mercy, which we had, he had prepared beforehand for glory. Now that's a sovereign purpose that will eventuate in a greater manifestation of his power and his wrath against those who have sinned against him, against those vessels of wrath, those who are deserving of his judgment. And it's a sovereign purpose that will terminate upon a greater manifestation of his own glory as he demonstrates the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. As he demonstrates in eternity the exceeding riches of his grace and mercy poured out on those who are also deserving of his his judgment, but nevertheless, because of the work of his own son, are vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. It's in this way that God, if you think with me, It's in this way that God puts his wrath, as it were, puts his judgment, as it were, in the service of his mercy. He puts his wrath, his righteous wrath, in the service of his grace. It's against the terrifying backdrop of God's righteous wrath, the backdrop of his power, 
his omnipotent power poured out in punishment, poured out in retribution against unbelievers. And through that, he more vividly displays, if you will, the infinite and inexhaustible riches of his glory, the infinite and matchless wealth of his grace, his own glory poured out in the salvation of those who have placed their faith in his son. So that in the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter two, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is all to the praise of the glory of his name. He does it all for the glory of his name. Now, Paul to this point in Romans 9, has explained this sovereign purpose of God in the context of his concern over the unbelief and apostasy of Israel. Objectors have risen up, as it were, in Paul's experience and have objected to Paul's gospel because if they, they say, if the gospel that Paul preaches is true, then God has been unfaithful to his word to Israel. How do you explain the unbelief and the apostasy of Israel in light of Paul's gospel, in light of what Paul is saying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is. So Paul's concern is this. Within the nation of Israel, from among the natural descendants of Abraham, there are to be found vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. It's not that God's word has taken no effect. It's not that God has been unfaithful to his word. Within Israel, there are to be found vessels of dishonor and vessels of honor, vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children of God because they are the natural or physical or ethnic descendants of Abraham. It's the children of the promise who are counted as the seed. It is the children of the promise who will inherit with believing Abraham. So therefore, Paul draws the conclusion, God has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, God hardens. It's in this context, in the context of Paul's concern over unbelieving and apostate Israel, that Paul then explains the inclusion of the Gentiles in the eternal redemptive plans and purposes of God, in his saving purposes. And against the prevailing thought of Paul's Jewish objectors, just as there are to be found vessels of wrath among the natural descendants of Abraham, Just as that is true, there are to be found vessels of mercy among the Gentiles. As he says in verse 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And by extension, brothers and sisters, even us whom he has called, right? God's election of a people for the sake of his name included Gentiles. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this is not plan B because the Jews forsook the the covenant. That's not the case at all. This is plan A from the beginning. God is intended to save the Gentiles through faith in his son, to grant him, as it were, the nations for his own name. The Gentiles would partake of the promises that God had made to their father, Abraham. Notice that God had made to their father, Abraham. And God would show mercy through Abraham to the nations. In him, in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. All those who would place their faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore know, know it, (laughs) that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. If someone is faithless, If someone does not believe, if someone has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, if someone is living in their sin, they've turned a blind eye to the gospel, they've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, are they the seed of Abraham? No. 
and they do not inherit the promises. Only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And verse 14, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ alone. They are in nowhere, no one else. They're nowhere else. They're in Jesus Christ alone. And it's in this way that all Israel will be saved. Who is Israel? Israel are made up of those who have the faith of believing Abraham, their father, and have put their faith and trust in God's promised seed, in God's promised Messiah, in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's Israel. That's true Israel. And it's in this way that all true Israel will be saved. It's important that we understand these, these terms because what we're, what we're getting here from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 is the proper definition of those terms. <laughs> we're, we see those terms now applied as they should be by Paul. It's not that we took Israel and we gave Israel a new definition. There's a physical definition and there's a spiritual definition. Israel, biblically, are those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the sons of Abraham. True Israel, the Israel of God, okay? So we've got to understand these terms and how these terms apply to us, brothers and sisters, how Paul, Peter, the other apostles, use them in the New Testament. Now, Paul then, in our text, sets himself to proving that point. He's going to prove it. He's going to prove it from the Old Testament scriptures. And he refers to the prophecies of Hosea and then Isaiah to do it. Verse 25. Just as God says also in Hosea. In other words, the point that I'm making is the point that Hosea, God was making through the prophet Hosea. We're not taking Hosea and redefining Hosea. We're not taking Hosea and reinterpreting Hosea. No, this is the interpretation of Hosea. Right? This is what God has said also in Hosea. I will call them my people who were not my people. I will call her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they should be called the sons of the living God. As we saw from the prophecy of Hosea in part one on this text, the northern kingdom of Israel had committed spiritual adultery against the Lord. In the words of Ezekiel, she had acted like a brazen whore. And she had done so by prostituting herself to the idolatrous false gods of all the nations around her, all the nations that surrounded her. So Hosea then is to proclaim through a living parable, as it were, God's judgment upon this idolatrous and sinful nation. Hosea is commanded to take a wife, Gomer, meaning the end, he's to take a wife that is representative of that harlotry, whose very name signifies or portends, if you will, the end of the northern kingdom. And in that living parable, God pronounces great judgment against the nation. God's verdict against their idolatry is then announced in the names of Hosea's children. Jezreel, meaning God sows, and in this case, meaning God sows a great judgment. God will sow his judgment and put an end to the house of Israel. Lo Ruhama, God will put an end to his mercy. Lo Ama, Ami, God will put an end to the covenant relationship between them. For God says to Israel, you are not my people and I will not be your God. It's a judgment, do you see? And yet, for God's verdict against the nation, for these very judgments that will shortly come to pass in the history of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians, God then makes a, an astounding promise. 
And it's, it's a promise that is astounding because of the, the overwhelming magnitude of God's grace and his mercy. Imagine the ways that Israel has sinned against him. Imagine the ways that you've sinned against him. God is rich in mercy. If there were a better word, rich. So I'm just going to say it with more emphasis. Rich in mercy. Abounding, abounding in grace. Immeasurably rich in mercy. Right? If it weren't for the mercy of God, we'd be lost with them. But God in mercy, God in grace announces the restoration of a people for his own name. He could have consumed them in an instant. He is ase, not dependent on anyone or anything. God could have been eternally pleased, blessed in his own person. But God chose for the glory of his own name, for the display of his own grace and mercy, God chose to save a people to himself. He chose to save a remnant to himself. And God promises that essentially in Hosea chapter one, verse 10. Listen. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. Now let me ask you, brothers and sisters, we're reading in the Old Testament. We just quoted a passage from Hosea chapter one, verse 10. And you see there the word Israel with a new covenant lens, looking at Hosea through the filter, if you will, or through the lens of the cross, how are we to understand that term? We know how we understand that term because Paul has taught us how we are to understand that term. Israel, true Israel, are those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, so this, this pronouncement of judgment, is, this is proclaimed against the nation for their idolatry. God says, I'm gonna put an end to you. And then he says, yet... Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. How's that going to be accomplished? How's that possible? They'll be as the number of the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. The promise to Abraham, God has not broken his promise. God has not violated his word. The promise that he made to Abraham is fulfilled through faith in Jesus Christ. The promised seed of Abraham will come from the, all the nations of the earth. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in believing Abraham. Hosea chapter 2. In the place of Jezreel, where God sowed judgment, now God promises to sow mercy. Lo Ruhama, no mercy, becomes Ruhama, the one who has obtained mercy. Lo Ami, not my people, becomes Ami, my people sons of the living God. And Paul refers to this Old Testament text in Hosea and all of its context to show that God all along from eternity had determined to save the nations through faith in his son. As God said to the son in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6, behold, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Speaking of ethnic Israel there, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Known to God from eternity are all his works, amen? Now, in the words of Ephesians chapter two then, think with me, Gentiles who were once aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world, once far off, now those Gentiles are brought near through the blood of Christ. Once forsaken, now embraced, as it were, in the covenant love of God. 
Romans chapter 9, verse 25, just as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people. I will call her beloved who is not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Now those three designations apply exclusively to the people of God. Think with me about that. My people, beloved sons of the living God. Sons of God. Those three designations apply to the people of God. In the Old Testament, those designations referred to those who were heirs of the covenant promises that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the Old Testament, they referred to those who were heirs of those covenant promises. When you read your Old Testament, my people, my beloved, sons of the living God, refer to those who were covenant heirs of the covenant promises. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul, think of the significance of this, Paul applies those designations to elect Gentiles who are called out from among the nations. He applies those terms to Gentiles. In other words, those designations, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then those designations apply to you. My people, my beloved sons of the living God, those who have turned from sin to faith in Jesus Christ, those designations apply to you. Elect Jew and elect Gentile alike. Now, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's not support for, fem- for women pastors. What is that saying? That's the inclusion of the Gentiles in the redemptive purposes and plans of God. God has extended mercy, mercy and grace to the nations through Jesus Christ. It's not a justification for women pastors. <laughs> First, God refers to Israel as my people, my people. In laying out covenant stipulations under the law, God says this to Israel in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11. Leviticus 26, verse 11, God says, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. The wonders of God's mercy (laughs) that his perfect, righteous, holy soul would not abhor you. (laughs) A wicked, undeserving, wretched, deplorable sinner. Right? That's mercy. That's grace. I will set my tabernacle among you. My presence will be among you. My soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. That is an unspeakable blessing. Indescribable grace, indescribable mercy that we who are deserving, deserving of his abhorrence are to be called his people. That he dwells among us. That he sets his tabernacle in our midst. The Lord said to David, you shall shepherd my people Israel. They're his possession, you see? His, and be ruler over my people Israel. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, in Isaiah chapter 53, God says, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And again, against the notion that Jesus Christ died for everybody. He, got, he died to make salvation possible. It's potential. It's waiting there if you turn... Jesus Christ died for the transgressions. God says, Isaiah 53, died for the transgressions of my people. 
For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Speaking of those who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ under the new covenant, God says this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's astounding grace, astounding mercy. Let me remind us as well in Jeremiah 31. If you've been born again, if you've been born again, you've been given a new heart. God has taken your heart of stone, that obstinate, dead, lifeless, sinful heart. He's taken that heart of stone out of your breast, as it were, and have given you a heart of flesh, a tender heart, a heart that delights in God, delights in God's word. If you're in the new covenant, if you're a part of that covenant through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been brought into the covenant, you've been born again, then God has, in the words of Jeremiah 31, fulfilled these covenant promises to you. He has put his law in your mind. He has written it upon your heart. I will be their God, they shall be my, my people. Who's he speaking of there? If you've turned to Jesus Christ, if you've been justified this speaks of you. You're a member of this covenant. And who is this covenant made with? With the house of Israel. You see how we're to see those terms, these promises through the perspective or from the perspective of the cross and God's eternal purposes in Jesus Christ. We're not redefining Old Testament terms. We're interpreting them correctly. Do you see? Now that designation, those designations don't apply to those whom God has sworn his wrath, they would not enter his rest. They don't apply to those who will perish. Those covenant promises aren't granted to those who will perish. That designation no longer applies to old covenant, physical, ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel. It no longer applies to a physical, ethnic people. Who do those designations apply to? They apply to those who turn to Jesus Christ in faith. The designation applies to the Israel of God. Does not the New Testament say the same? Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 16, Paul says to the church, you are the temple of the living God. Where was it said that God tabernacled among his people? In the tabernacle, <laughs> in the temple. God's presence was signified in the temple, in the descent of the cloud, where God was said to have tabernacled amongst his people. God says, I will dwell with them and be their God, and they shall be my people. Right? You, brothers and sisters, are the temple of the living God. Why? Because God has taken up his abode in you. God has indwelt you with his spirit. Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Spirit, have made their home with you if you've been born again. You are the temple of the living God. God tabernacles amongst us by his spirit. God says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's a wondrous reality, a wondrous truth. Having referred to Israel as my people, God then refers to Israel as beloved, as beloved. God says of Israel in Hosea chapter two, Hosea chapter, turn there with me, Hosea chapter two. And beginning there in verse 19, God refers to Israel 
We've got to think about how we understand that term. God refers to Israel as beloved. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Well, he's just made a proclamation that the northern kingdom, because of their wicked idolatry, would be not my people, would be no mercy, would be Loami and Loruama. But here he says to Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. In what way? We're to understand that from Paul's writing, Paul's understanding of these things in Romans chapter 9. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice displayed most preeminently at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In loving kindness and in mercy, I will betroth you, verse 20, to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That's a new covenant promise. From the least of them to the greatest of them, they'll know the Lord. Why? Because we are indwelt by his spirit. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. There are going to be blessings. They shall answer Jezreel. For then I will sow her for myself in all the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. God speaks of his covenant love for his people as that of a husband for his wife. And Paul refers to the church at Rome in the New Testament as the beloved of God. The beloved of God. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. We are beloved. We are the people of God, his people. We are his beloved. That designation doesn't apply to those whom God has sworn in his wrath they would not enter his rest. Doesn't apply to them. Those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ perish in their sins. That designation no longer applies to the old covenant physical ethnic nation of Israel. That covenant is obsolete. It's been done away with. That covenant doesn't exist anymore. God has replaced it, as it were, with a new covenant, a better covenant, based on better promises, with better surety, right? God has given us the new covenant. That designation, beloved, applies to the Israel of God. Do you see? Now, God refers to Israel then as sons of the living God. We're looking at these terms, these designations that Paul quotes here at the end of Romans 9. Hosea 1.10, if you just flip the page back, Hosea 1.10, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. It shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. The children of Judah, the children of Israel, all the, those who share the faith of Abraham gather together under one head, our Lord Jesus Christ, and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of God sowing his mercy. Great will be the day of Jezreel. Great will be the day in which God will sow to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Great is that day of mercy. Mercy that is only shown in and through the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. For as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, what? These are the sons of God. Only those led by the Spirit of God. 
Now these designations are designations that reflect God's covenant love. They are displays, if you will, manifestations. They are designations that communicate God's, they communicate to the people of God, God's covenant love for them. They are designations for all of those to whom all the covenant blessings and promises flow. They're in on the covenant. They have been given all of the covenant blessings and promises. Those who are the children of promise, those who are the designated seed, if you will, of Abraham, that seed which shares the faith of believing Abraham. They are designations which apply to all the vessels of honor, to all the vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. In other words, church, these are your designations. <laughs> if, you've been, if you've turned from sin and put your faith in Christ, these designations are your designations. You are his people. You are his beloved. All, all, all of the promises of God flow to you through Jesus Christ because you are his beloved. He has promised these things to us through him. This should impact the way that you read your Bible. Okay, when, when, you, when you, the Old Testament is our testament. <laughs> it's our Bible. It's profitable for our instruction, for our reproof, for our encouragement. It's, those are our scriptures, right? They've, they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So when you read your Old Testament and you're reading about God's promises to Israel, how are we to see that? How are you to take it? When God promises a restoration, who is he talking about? And when is he talking about it? We know these things revealed to us in the New Testament, right? All of God's promises to his beloved, to his people, to sons of the living God, they all flow down to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Was Abraham saved in any other way? No. He was saved through faith in God's promised seed, in God's promised Messiah. He was saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Do you see? Romans chapter 4, verse 16, listen. Therefore, it, these promises, the fulfillment of these promises, therefore, it is of faith, so that it might be according to grace, and not according to works, so that the promise might be sure, might be certain to all the seed. Not only those who are of the law, elect Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham from elect Gentiles, who is the father of us all, not just Jew, but elect Gentile as well. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, not just elect Jews, but elect Gentiles as well. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he, Abraham, became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. It's a wonder, a marvel, God's redemptive plans and purposes, right? If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then God is saying to you, on the testimony of his word, from the beginning, from eternity, that you belong to me, God says. You are mine. You are my people. You are my beloved. You are my son. And with my son, you will inherit all things. That's what God says to us. It's amazing. Now, 
It's here then, back in Romans 9, that Paul once again now turns his attention back to ethnic Israel. He turns his attention back to physical descendants of Abraham. Verse 27. Isaiah then also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he, God, will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, unless he had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So Paul now has already made the point from the Old Testament prophecy of Hosea that God all along had planned for the Gentiles to be included in the commonwealth of Israel, for the Gentiles to be included in the promises, so to speak, and eternally saved through the work of his promised Messiah. Now, Paul turns back to the Jews. And in the context that the bulk of the remaining nation now is largely apostate and unbelieving. And in explanation of this reality, Paul then refers to the prophecy of Isaiah and to the doctrine of the remnant. Now think with me. In Hosea, we saw a prophecy of God's judgment upon Israel. God prophesies judgment against the northern kingdom. And that judgment by the hand of the Assyrians, the rod of God's anger. In the context of that prophecy of judgment, God, God promises the restoration of his people, his beloved a people made up of elect Jews and elect Gentiles who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. God prophesies a restoration of his people. Likewise now in Isaiah, we find a prophecy of God's judgment against now Judah, the southern kingdom. And like their northern neighbor, Judah will also fall under the judgment of God for their idolatry. Also like their northern neighbor, the rod of God's anger in the case of this judgment will now be the Assyrians, later be the Chaldeans. And the Lord says that he's going to shave, as it were, with Assyria like a rented razor. And he's going to, shamefully, he's going to remove the beard of Israel, so to speak. Now, once again, in the context of this prophecy of judgment, we also, in great grace and mercy, we also see a prophecy of God's restoration of his people, a promise of mercy, a promise of grace. However, in this case of the southern kingdom, in this case of Isaiah's prophecy, in this case of Judah, it's a prof prof promise of mercy that will come only upon a remnant. When we saw that, pro that prophecy of restoration in Hosea, it was a people who were not called his people, who were restored as his people, right? It was the inclusion of the Gentiles. Here, Isaiah speaks of a salvation of the remnant. And that salvation, that restoration, that judgment even, is also, as it was in Hosea, is in part signified by the names of Isaiah's two sons. In Isaiah chapter 8, turn there with me. In Isaiah chapter 8, we are introduced to Isaiah's younger, youngest son. His name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Many of you like to give biblical names to your children. I submit that one for consideration, right? <laughs> you could call him Shabazz for short, right? Shabazz. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That name means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. 
The name signifies the speed with which God's judgment will fall upon Judah. Right? Isaiah chapter 8 verse 4. Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Isaiah's eldest son is named Shir Jashub. Shir Jashub means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. So Isaiah names his children, <laughs> quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, showing God's judgment, and Shir Jashub, a remnant shall return. And this prophesies through the prophet, a living parable, if you will, God's promises, God's word to them. Now that name, remnant, signifies both a negative and a positive result. Negatively, only a remnant will return. Do you see? It's indicative of judgment. Positively, a remnant will return. <laughs> right? God's grace, God's mercy. So that name signifies both negative and positive results. God's mercy and God's, God's goodness and God's severity. Right? Consider both the severity and the goodness of God. In Romans chapter 9, Paul then quotes two statements from the prophecy of Isaiah. The first comes from Isaiah 10. You can turn there with me. Just flip a page to the right. And the second from Isaiah chapter 1, right? But in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1, here's where God prophesies his judgment against Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy. They have prescribed misfortune to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people. You see that? My people. You see God's indignation even in those words. That widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. This reminds me of the martyrs underneath the altar of incense in Roman, Revelation chapter 5, right? Praying out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, before you avenge our blood upon, upon those who dwell upon the earth, right? God has this righteous indignation against those who assault his people, against those who, like Amalek, who attacked the rear guard, picking off the weak in Israel. God says, I'm going to wipe Amalek off the face of the planet forever, Right? God has a particular love for, care for, compassion for, pity for his people, whose people you are through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? They'll make widows their prey. They'll rob the fatherless. Verse 3, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners. They shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God promises his judgment will fall swiftly. It's going to come by the hand of the Assyrians, the staff in whose hand is God's indignation against Judah, the people of his wrath. Assyria, verse 6, Assyria will seize the spoil. They'll take the prey. They're going to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And then, verse 20, Verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Did they escape by their own cunning? Did they escape by their own strength? 
Their own doing, their own will? No, they escape by God's mercy. By God's mercy. Verse 21, the remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea. Does that sound familiar? We just read that in Hosea. And yet the people of Israel will be as the speaking of all of God's people, elect Jew and elect Gentile, restored at the end of the age. Here, speaking of now physical ethnic Israel, God says, for though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea. Israel at this point was plentiful. They were large in number. They had grown. Only, verse 22, a remnant of them will return. It's interesting, isn't it, how those two things fit together? The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end. The Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord God of hosts, will make a determined end. That word means a sharp end, a cut end. It's like a slashing end. He's a quick work and it's done. You see? A sharp slack, uh, a slashing, cutting consumption, devastation in the midst of all the land. In other words, the destruction will be swift, the destruction will be overwhelming, the destruction will be righteous. Vast, vast, vast majority of the nation will be swept away in God's righteous judgment. And verse 19, they will be so few in number that a child may write them. (laughs) So few in number. We see that in Ezra, don't we? In our study of Ezra, some years ago. Ezra, grateful to the Lord that he left a peg in Israel. They'd come back so few in number. However, in the midst of this proclamation of God's impending and devastating judgment on Judah, there is a promised deliverance, a promise of God's continuing mercy. Verse 21, the remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. He doesn't mean simply they're returning physically. What does he mean? He means returning to God, returning in repentance, returning in faith to the mighty God. Not simply a return from battle, not simply a return from captivity, a return to God. Consider both the goodness and severity of God in this. His severity toward those who fell swiftly, decisively, a cutting, slashing consumption. And consider his mercy and his goodness, his astonishing mercy in leaving himself a remnant of the repentant, a faithful remnant through whom God will fulfill all of his promises through Jesus Christ our Lord for the sake of their fathers. Isaiah had referenced this judgment of God before in the second of two passages quoted by Paul. Turn to Isaiah chapter one. Isaiah chapter one. That reference, the second of two passages referenced by Paul in Romans chapter nine. We find that reference in Isaiah chapter one beginning in verse seven. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard. You see that? Very small. As a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. 
unless the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabbath, had left to us a very small remnant. Now in Romans chapter 9, Paul refers to that Hebrew word as a seed, as a grain, a grain. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, if it were not for God's sovereign mercy, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. We too would have been brought to a swift and complete end, wiped from the face of the earth. If we had not really tried hard and really turned, we, we, we did it. We turned to God, right? If we had not sought him, right? If we had not worshiped, like we, you know, we not done the things we were supposed to do. No, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who spares. God is the one who shows mercy. He shows mercy on those whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. If it were not for God's sovereign mercy, then we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. It's in the doctrine of the remnant that Isaiah establishes the fact in the Old Testament that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. It's, it's astonishingly presumptuous on the part of unbelieving and apostate Jews in Paul's day for them to reject the word of God and say, because the blood of Abraham courses through our veins, because we're circumcised, right? Or because we've been given the law of God, because we have Abraham as our father, we're entitled to heaven. How can you say that? When the entire first generation coming out of Egypt into the wilderness died, God having sworn in his wrath, they would not enter his rest. The only ones who saw the promised land, Josh, Caleb, and the kids, right? The, the doctrine of the remnants establishes the fact in the Old Testament they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Those whom God judges for their idolatry, those who perish in the rebellion, and those whom God saves, a remnant for himself. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they children of God because they are the natural or physical descendants of Abraham. A vast majority, Paul knows, a vast majority of the nation will be destroyed. Judgment has been decreed for the bulk of the nation for turning from the Lord their God. And yet, in the mercy and grace of God, there will remain a remnant of those who believe. A remnant of those who share the faith of their father Abraham. That remnant is not spared apart from the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That remnant is spared because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God shows mercy to them through the work of his promised Messiah. There will remain a remnant of those who believe a remnant who share Abraham's faith, a remnant whose hearts are circumcised to love the Lord their God, a remnant through whom God will fulfill all of his promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And God would forgive all their sins. Listen to this from Micah chapter seven, Micah seven, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? Who is a God like you, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. A remnant that doesn't deserve it. Do you see? It's a remnant that doesn't deserve it. They deserve his wrath. They deserve his justice. And God pardons their iniquity. He doesn't wipe his judgment 
or his justice under the rug. He doesn't turn a blind eye to justice. God exacts justice, and he does so in his own son when Jesus Christ died in their place at Calvary. God pours out his judgment upon his only begotten son that these could be saved. Do you see? He doesn't do it against justice or against his judgment. He does it because of his justice. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, being both just and the justifier of the one who puts faith in Jesus? Who is a God like you, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. He gave his own son because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham. You are Jacob. You are Abraham if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see? Which you, God, have sworn to our fathers from days of old. He is faithful to his word. Faithful to his promises. Back in Romans chapter 9. So Isaiah then, Paul, again, quoting Isaiah. Isaiah in verse 27 also cries out then concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. And then, more closely here following the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Paul explains verse 28. He will finish the work, cut it short in righteousness. Your translations in the Old Testament might say, he will make a determined end, a cutting end. Here, it's understood to be cutting it short. Right? Cutting it short in righteousness. Because, and Paul explains, the Lord will make a short work on the earth. Finishing the work, verse 28, refers to a sure and certain accomplishment of it. God will see to it. Both the judgment and the salvation, right? Cutting it short refers to the pace with which it will be accomplished. The Lord will make a swift work of his retributive judgment upon the earth. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So widespread, though, will be the extent of his judgment that only a remnant will escape. God's promises are not fulfilled to the mass of idolatrous Israel, but rather are fulfilled to the remnant, those whom he has saved for the glory of his name. As the Lord said, Amos chapter 3, verse 12 as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria. And again, it's against the realization, if you will, against an understanding of the sweeping extent of God's judgment that we then see more clearly displayed the riches and the sweetness of his mercy. As Isaiah said before, verse 29, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, a grain, a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. It's by the mercy of God alone that a small seed remains. By the mercy of God, by the grace of God. It is not by the will of man. It is not by the work of men. All men deserve judgment. 
All men deserve the judgment that was poured out upon those two cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It would be it would be just, if we want to talk about justice, if we want to talk about fairness, it would be just if every single one of us received the same retribution that those two cities received. That would be just, right? that would be fair. If it were not for the mercy of God, withholding from us that which we deserve, it's mercy, if you will, common grace that you're breathing his air right now if you've not turned from sin to put your faith and trust in Christ, if you're not his people, his beloved sons of the living God, then you're sitting here right now breathing his air. You're taking in his grace. You're experiencing his mercy. Common grace. If it were not for the mercy of God, and mercy is withholding that which we deserve, then we too would have perished like Sodom. We too would have been made like Gomorrah. So we are, brothers and sisters, we are entirely dependent upon the mercy of God. Every one of you, you are, you are entirely dependent, entirely dependent upon the mercy of God. He has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. That should cause you to fear the Lord your God. That should humble your pride. All those thoughts you may have in your head right now about what is this? And who does he think he is? And what's God's word saying? All this talking about sin and judgment. Listen, you are like Sodom. You are like Gomorrah. And your only hope is the mercy of God. Your only hope is the, the grace of God. Humble yourself. Don't persist in your rebellion against God. Humble yourself. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith and be forgiven. God delights in mercy. All of that is to the praise of his grace. It's to the praise of his grace that any of us are saved. That should cause us to see the sacrifice of Christ as infinitely precious in our sight. It should cause us to seek him through Jesus Christ our Lord while there's time. It should humble your pride. Many, many will perish in their sins. That's what the doctrine of the remnant communicates. Think with me. The doctrine of the remnant communicates that many will perish. Do you see? The doctrine of the remnant is not only a testimony of the riches of God's mercy. The doctrine of the remnant is also a testimony of the extent of his justice. Many are called, few are chosen. You see? Peter says that the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a whole bunch of people were saved by... No, in which few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There were eight people on the ark. Ezra thanks God that he had left them a peg, a peg in Israel. Few came back from captivity. Joshua, Caleb, the children, only ones who saw the promised land. The entire generation that had come out of Egypt died in the wilderness. Though a great multitude, though a great multitude which no man can number, we see gathered around the throne. Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 7, gathered around the throne, worshiping God with palm branches in their hands. Though there will be a great multitude of every tribe, people, tongue, and nation, worshiping God in eternity, a multitude which no man can number, that multitude is a remnant in compared to the mass, the 
bulk of humanity that will die in their sins. Do you see? That will perish for their sin. In all of that, you might be tempted to think fatalistically about this doctrine or despairingly about this doctrine. But I want to draw your attention to a point. Uh, In Luke 13, the Lord was making his way to Jerusalem with his disciples. And as he was walking along the way, teaching parables, parables of the kingdom, teaching and preaching, having heard the Lord teach several parables of the kingdom, one turned and said to the Lord, asked him a question, Lord, are there few who are saved? Are there few who are saved? That understanding came upon him. The Lord replied, as if to say, what is that to you? What is that to you? And the Lord replied, rather, strive to enter through the narrow gate. It is a narrow gate. Are you to concern yourselves with whether few or many are to be saved? The Lord says, don't concern yourselves with the hidden counsels of God, the hidden decrees of God, what God does in his own infinite mind to redeem the people, a people out for his name. Why? What is that to you? Don't concern yourselves with those things that we can't know or understand. What does the Lord Jesus Christ say for you to do? The Lord Jesus Christ turns to you and says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Strive, he says, for many, many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Do not take careless risks, if you will, with your own soul. Do not allow spiritual apathy or spiritual carelessness or a carelessness with this world or a friendship with this world or carelessness with your sin. Do not allow carelessness or apathy to cost you your soul. Do you see? Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Difficult is the way which leads to life. Few there are who find it. Make sure you enter. Turn from your sin. Do not be sluggish. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises and live for Jesus Christ. God delights in mercy. Mercy comes alone from him through Jesus Christ our Lord. All these passages, these passages from Hosea, these passages from Isaiah that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9, Paul brings those passages in all their context to bear upon his primary concern. And that is proving the case that God is faithful to his word. Despite the unbelieving and apostate condition of Israel, despite God's judgment upon the northern kingdom, despite the destruction that he has brought upon the southern kingdom, despite the fact that only a very small remnant of ethnic Israel remains faithful to God, God has never once ever compromised his covenant faithfulness to Israel. Never once. God has not ever compromised covenant faithfulness to his word. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. God is faithful. And what God has decreed from eternity was a remnant of a people that he has called to himself that would put faith in his son. 
true Israel, the Israel of God, the true circumcision, a remnant of believing Jews, a remnant of believing Gentiles, they are the children of promise. They are counted as the seed of Abraham. They will inherit all things and he will be our God. We will be his people. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we rejoice in that grace. We rejoice in that mercy, overwhelmed with gratitude for how kind you've been to us through Jesus Christ, for how you, Lord, have spared us what we deserve, withholding your retributive justice and then pouring out that justice upon the Lord Jesus Christ in our place having struck him for our transgressions. Now, Lord, you have called us out of this world to yourself, dwelt us with your spirit, given us a new heart, forgiven us, granted us repentance and faith, whereby we might believe upon your son and have justified us, reconciled us to yourself, given us peace with our God, that we might be called sons of the living God. And if sons, then heirs, heirs of God and heirs through Jesus Christ, our Lord, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, inheriting all things in Him. We praise you and thank you for this astounding mercy, this astounding grace. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.